Welcome to a new year and the City of Fountain's favorite podcast, Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. I'm Stephanie Brimhall, the Director of Education and Community Engagement with the Kansas City Symphony. And I'm Gonzalo Farias, the Associate Conductor here at the Kansas City Symphony. Well, Happy New Year, Gonzalo. It's so nice to see you. I see you finally found your way out from under all of those holiday scores. You were quite uh, quite busy with our holiday programming. And congratulations on a successful December. Well, thank you so much. We had such great fun during December. Of course, we had the Christmas festival uh, concerts and mm-hmm. I was quite, you know, excited for all of the concerts and they turned out really, really well. And we had so many people, we had Santa, we had such a great uh, time together. So I was super happy and you know, I had a great time uh, during the holidays. I could finally sleep. So that was great. <laughs> it's so nice that the symphony has such a, a great relationship with Santa that he spends, you know, five or six days with us in December. I think every single year he comes out of nowhere. So it's great. It's great. Well, somebody must be on the nice list for sure. It's definitely not <laughs> me. So, <laughs> well, now that we're done with December, um, you know, I know we're all really looking forward to bringing back our non-holiday programming. And uh, throughout the coming weeks, we're going to present traditional symphonic concerts with world-renowned soloists, We're going to enter the Marvel Universe with Black Panther um, in concert film with all the music performed live. Um, We're presenting a tribute to Aretha Franklin. And I'm excited, Gonzalo, to uh, get back into our educational series with some link-up performances where our hall will be filled with thousands of students playing recorder. That's the best. I know. (laughs) Um, And then our family concert, which which I want to talk about here um, soon, Philharmonia Fantastique is coming up as well. So uh, really looking forward to all of that. But kicking all of this off is our guest today, who is joining us this week uh, conducting the symphony in works by Mason Bates, Mozart, and Respighi. So welcome to Beethoven Walks Into a Bar, Francesco Lecce Chong. Thank you, Stephanie. Good to see you, Gonzalo. <laughs> Thanks Great so to hear you. Well, welcome, Francesco. We're so excited to welcome you here in Kansas City for really a great program so let's just r- jump into it. Um, we're going to have, you know, three concerts are, are at Hellsberg Hall, and we're going to have music from Mason Bates, Mozart, Respighi. Can you walk us through the program, Francesco? Sure. I, you know, it's definitely a program where everything kind of has its own little niche. Um, so we really get to have kind of three very different uh, experiences, which I always find particularly fun when I'm getting to know an orchestra in a hall um, for the first time is kind of getting three different ways of working. Uh, the, the Mason Bates is is a, a piece that's very close to me because my first uh, assistantship was with the Milwaukee Symphony and the music director there was Ado DeVart. And Garages of the Valley is actually dedicated to Edo. Um, they, he gave the premiere in St. Paul, and then I worked with him on the premiere that the Milwaukee Symphony gave of the work. So it's about, oh, I think it's about eight years old now. Um, so it was one of the first kind of new works that I got to see how the process goes between a composer and a conductor kind of working things through for the first time and the amount of changes that happen kind of during that week. Um, so it was always like an experience that was very uh, fascinating to me. And and I, I started conducting it myself kind of as soon as I had those opportunities. Mm. Um, so I'm really excited to bring this piece to, to Kansas City. Uh, it's a piece that 
kind of speaks to where I am, you know, here in the Bay Area. Uh, it's Garages of the Valley refers to um, the tech companies that were started in Silicon Valley. And so it's all about, you know, uh, people who are tinkering in their garages. And so a lot of this music is little snippets of music. You can hear like light percussion that's kind of tinkering at things. And it's always just kind of trying to find its place. And then there's there's moments of, of retrospection, you know, where, mm. where you can see you're kind of, letting things lie for a while and then that tinkering starts up again um it's a very vivid piece i i think it's one of those things that uh mason does so well is uh he evokes whatever the thing he's going for you know like even if it's like philharmonia fantastique you know where he's teaching um you know everyone about the different instruments in the orchestra and what they can do and and in this piece he really evokes um you know that kind of tech genius trying to figure out how to put things together but I think what's so fascinating about uh, Mason Bates is that he has somehow developed his own language. So all of the pieces that he uh, composes in some ways sounds like Mason Bates. So I think it's just a combination of uh, the instruments, uh, the flow, the rhythmic you know, intensity of pieces. Can you talk a tiny bit about how does that language uh, resonate? With you. Sure. You know, I think this is one of my favorite pieces by Mason as well, because one of the things that people think of as his calling card is the electronics. Mm. So like, you know, his background mm. as a, uh, being a DJ and, you know, he's really comfortable bringing in this, these kind of live electronics into the orchestra. And I love all of that. But this piece is really special because he doesn't he shows that he doesn't need it. Like that's not actually what his music's about. Like it's a tool that he enjoys you know, bringing into the orchestra. But, you know, with this, it's just acoustic instruments and they're still, like you were talking about that vitality, you know, the rhythmic intensity, the rhythmic drive. Uh, you know, one of the amazing things in, in Garages of the Valley is over 15 minutes, the tempo, the pulse of the tempo never changes. Mm, never. Um, it just constantly is modulating through different, you know, sometimes you think there's no rhythm, but the temp, the pulse of it has never actually changed through all the different aspects of the piece. Um, so you know, it's it's uh, I, I like it because it's not it's not minimalism in the way that he treats mm. you know this rhythmic drive. But at the same time, there is a cohesiveness uh, that I, I really appreciate. Uh, but he's not afraid to you know write a great melody and and have a theme when the time is right. I, I think that's a great concept, like cohesiveness. Like every single piece of Mason Bates, there's something somehow I don't really know how he does it, but you feel that the entire piece is just one narrative, no matter how many sections. That's and, and that's amazing. And personally, I don't know if you agree, but there's something so peculiar about the combination of marimba and trumpet, and also glockenspiel and woodwind playing. And and I, I actually I, I completely agree that somehow that feels like electronic sounds that's just a miracle yeah i mean i think i think the true the the true mark of a great composer is you take away some of their tools and it doesn't make a difference you know mm -hmm. you let them write for 90 players and you make them write for 25 players and and it won't matter to them you know they 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 know what they're trying to do and they have that creativity and it comes through and i think that we see that with all the great composers and this piece is just a great example of of him writing for a, a pretty small orchestra and That's no right. electronics. You take all that away from him and you still have this fantastic piece that that has, um, you're right. I mean, it, it's like it's like you could totally picture there being electronic kind of 
MIDI pad behind the orchestra, uh, but it's not there. It's just the combinations that he's using. Awesome. And how does that piece you feel now informs the Mozart and the rest of the program? <laughs> well, it's definitely a, a different piece. I, I think, you know, talking about kind of the instrumentation and finding colors in the orchestra obviously will apply to Respighi in the second half, who I think is probably one of the most underrated composers that we all know. Um, you know, I don't think he gets, you know, we, we play Pines of Rome a lot and everything else kind of falls off after that. Um, but, you know, one of the genius orchestrators of all time. And you see that in how he brings together this massive orchestra to create some of the softest sounds that are possible, mm -hmm. as well as kind of building up to, um, you know, what you can do um, with with the full forces. Um, the Mozart, I guess, you know, in a sense, is a kind of a study in, in minimalism. You know, it's going to be so much fun to listen to the Mozart after the Mason Bates, right? Definitely. And and actually, in a sense, you know, you will have that rhythmic drive in Mozart because, of course, it's always there. Um, and it, it, it presents itself in, in different ways. Um, but the Mozart is... is I, the the more <laughs> the older I get, the more Mozart means to me. Like the more I find in it, um, you know. I remember, you know, I, on like in Suzuki playing the third, you know, violin concerto on the violin, and and thinking like, man, you know, I really wish I was playing like Tchaikovsky and like Mendelssohn, and you know, at the time I was like, what is this like kiddie concerto? <laughs> and and then you know, as you get older, Mozart gets harder and harder mm -hmm. and more and more detailed. And now I'm just a fanatic about this repertoire and all of the little details that are in it. Um, and actually, like how innovative and how modern, um, in a sense, uh, this music is. And the third concerto. A little bit like Respighi, it's like the Respighi of Mozart, you know, it's like it doesn't, it doesn't get treated with the seriousness that it deserves. And I'm really excited with, with Geneva to really dig in um, to this concerto and bring out all that vitality. You know, people don't even like, you know, realize that like first in, in the third movement, how ridiculously hilarious this third movement is with this rustic dance and then this strange snobby gavotte that lasts for like 30 seconds and then it's like bagpipe droning for a while and then back to this rustic dance and I, no one else was doing that you know then and and for you know many years afterwards no one would attempt to do something that dramatic in the middle of a of a you know concerto um so there there's you know the more i study music like this the the more incredible it is but also the more terrifying it is because you realize how delicate how transparent it is and every little turn of phrase is what matters you don't just get to you know play what's on the page I and mean, you really have to live it um so i think that'll be you know a, a different perspective on things but really fun like as you said after the baits um and, and certainly kind of bringing an intimacy to the concert before the respighi kind of blows it up into large form so I'm curious, you know, when we when we talk about Respighi, and I totally agree. I mean, it, as an orchestrator, and he's he's incredible, and really doesn't get the the credit that he deserves. So we're we're doing two of Respighi's works. We're doing Pines, which you said, you know, has these incredible moments. I'm a clarinetist, so like, you know, just a, the the stunning clarinet moment um, in there. But also, um, when we, I think we played Pines our first season in Hellsberg Hall. It may have even closed the season. And it's truly to this day, the loudest I've ever heard 
in that space, but in and not in like a in a painful or overdone way. It's just it's and it's one of those things where it's it's loud, but it's loud for like three minutes. You know, it's not it doesn't just give you like this big dramatic moment. It's just it builds and builds and builds. And you think it can't possibly build anymore. And then it keeps going. And then, you know, it's um, it's just so powerful. But I'm I'm also curious. Uh, I went back and looked. So we're doing Pines of Rome, but we're also doing Fountains of Rome, which we in Kansas City have not done since 1998. Um, so I'm curious, you know, how you paired those and, um, you know, your your thoughts on fountains and why it's, you know, it's, it's not performed nearly as often and not just by us. <laughs> Yeah, it's true. I I guess I've over time I've realized that um, I I can't do one without the other. Like mm. this pairing has just come to mean so much to me. The way these two pieces go together. I mean, the the dream would be, and I think in a sense, what we're speaking was after was the full triptych, which actually mm-hmm. is fountains, pines, and Roman festivals. Um, and that is on my bucket list someday to do in one concert, <laughs> all three of those, uh, which will be amazing someday. But at the very least to have these two together, because in a sense, they're, they're much closer than Roman festivals, just as far as the way they're constructed and, and what Respighi is trying to do. Um, so I think, you know, together, uh, they really paint a full picture of what Respighi is capable of. Um, I think, you know, fountains follows the same idea as as pines which is let's look at the fountains in italy let's pick four fountains at different times of day and let's turn that into music and pines is let's look at the pines in italy at you know four different times of day and and turn that into music and so there is sort of this beautiful mirror between the two pieces but also shows the diversity that Respighi brings. I mean, the, the colors that he brings, they're totally different pieces. Even the movements within each one of them paint their own picture. In like two to five minutes, each one of these movements paints a perfect picture of whatever he's trying to do, whether it's, you know, a, a, a light bubbly fountain, whether it's, you know, this glorious fountain in the middle of Rome and, and the same with the pines, you know, whether it's the pines like in the morning or just kind of a, in uh, you know, just kind of in the background um, to like, you know, being in the midst of pines, like an army, you know, as, as the piece ends, um, you know, I think each one of these movements uh, is just, it's just perfection. And, and I love studying it. I love working on it because I feel like I'm conducting kind of eight different pieces. Like they, they all are trying to do the same thing and paint these pictures, but you have to have each one have its own detail because he uses different instruments. He doesn't use the full orchestra really ever in a single movement until the very end. And so he'll have a group of instruments. Maybe it's, you know, a solo oboe and just like a solo cello as kind of like main voices. And then he'll move to, you know, interestingly, for instance, like fountains, which is the softer, more subdued of the two pieces is the one that actually has two harps, for instance, whereas in pines, he only needs one. You know, so there, there's some interesting things. You know, it's not just I need more instruments for more sound, but it's what kind of instruments do I need uh, to get, to capture um, these portraits? And and the amount of ingenuity that goes into that is is remarkable. Well, that's really exciting. I'm curious when you knew that you were coming to Kansas City. I know as a guest conductor, and we've talked with many guest conductors on this podcast. How does a program like this come together? Were um, you know, what 
was anything in place before you, you know, had the whole program? Was the whole program in place? Did you get to put your stamp on it a little bit? What? How did that come together? I, I, I feel very fortunate um, to come with a program that really I got to design. Um, I know that's not always the case, and and it's fine. I mean, I'm, I, I love kind of having to piece together things when I've given certain parameters. Um, in this particular case, it was just a lot of back and forth of... Um, you know, what the orchestra had played recently that, you know, that would be off the table. And and so what sort of things hadn't been done in a while. Um, I think it started, you always kind of want to find that that one piece that's going to kind of anchor what you want to build around. And so I think once Pines came into play as something that was, um, you know, well-known and, and an orchestra should play on a regular basis, uh, once they once we figured out that it was time to do that piece again in, in Kansas City, um, everything else kind of came from that. Because I, I knew I was like, if I do Pines, I need to do Fountains with that. Um, and then I think... Um, we had talked about different soloists and, and Geneva Lewis came up as a really great fit for this program. Um, and then kind of looking through her repertoire um, and what would kind of, I, I, I think when I program, I'm always looking for each piece to um, have its special spot in the program. I'm, I tend not to be a one theme kind of conductor where I want all my pieces to kind of be based on one thing. Uh, I like each one of them to be able to t- kind of tell their own story. And so finding a concerto that would, um, that would be highlighted on the program without getting in the way of something like the bombastic Respighi was really important to me. And that's kind of how the Mozart came into that. Um, and then obviously for me, um, I, I commission a ton of music. I do, you know, uh, just a massive quantity of American music um, with my orchestras here on the West Coast. And so uh, obviously anywhere I travel, I always try to bring um, one of those composers with me. Can I say too that... Um... I think on this program, it's really interesting that the electronic stuff doesn't come from Mason Bass piece, but it does come from Pines of Rome, right? It's a little like <laughs> inside baseball for our our listeners is that, you know, you are going to hear some digital music, but it's going to come in the Respighi. I can't believe I didn't think of that. It's amazing. You're right. <laughs> um, and of course, that's the bird calls. And, um, you know, it's really funny when, you, when you're looking at the score and you're looking at the instrumentation just and in, in what that involves. But um, so I'm curious, you know, you mentioned your... Um, wanting to do American music. And um, I noticed in looking through, you know, your programs that you've done a lot with um, living composers. Can you talk a little bit just about why that's so important to you and, and why programming music by living composers and introducing audiences to new music is important to the, the field that we're in, in general? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, at its core, you know, I can't imagine being in a field where I would think that the the best that's happened has already been in the past. Like, I just can't imagine working knowing that nothing will ever be better than what we already have. And and so for me, it's just a basic function of being a musician is and it has been for as long as there's been music, as long as there's been the arts, the basic function is to inspire creativity now, like what's happening now. Um, and so that's just kind of been a baseline for how I work. You know, I, I did start my undergraduate degree as a pianist and a composer. So I was really active as a composer, uh, kind of up through kind of my first couple of years of, of college in New York. And then I, I, um, as I became more of a conductor, I realized that I, I really liked, um, 
uh, championing the works of my colleagues, you know, composers who were writing far better things than I would ever write. And I knew that. Um, and, it, and being able to kind of take it upon myself to work on their music and um, and bring it to audiences has been really one of the most fulfilling parts about being a music director, for sure. I mean, the moment I could move on from being an assistant and and everything that I learned from that process. But the moment I became music director, I knew that finding these commissioning projects would be really important. And honestly, what I found is that there is an incredible amount of support if it's done in meaningful ways. Uh, I think that was always kind of one of my concerns. And I think the concerns of a lot of people is how do you get audiences to feel comfortable hearing something for the first time because we don't do that very often and and honestly that's the fault of orchestras over the past you know 50 years is that we we don't do it enough for our audiences to know how to approach a new work and so that's been really fun for me is kind of cultivate this excitement around new music uh in my communities and how we approach it the idea that your first thought should not be do i like this or not or do i understand this or not but just just take it in you know like whatever you think about is totally valid and it's been that way again as long as we've been creating music the composer has never said there's only one way to appreciate their music and that doesn't change now mm. um and i think we're really in a golden age of composition and there's so many composers that i think are composing with the experience in mind like they do want to communicate something to their audience uh, you know, I'm working with two composer in residence this year, um, Gabriela Smith and Angelica Negron. And, and both of them bring in these incredible sounds into the orchestra. Gabriela does it acoustically by having the instruments used in really unique and unusual ways to create the sounds of like an ocean and birds and, you know, surround you in this like you're walking through nature. And, and Angelica, you know, blends in these beautiful electronics that just kind of meld into the orchestra and really kind of transports you to other universes. And somehow, you know, just working with the two of them, letting them uh, spend time in the communities. You know, they both do double residencies with the orchestras and they really get to spend time to connect with people. And it's amazing the sensation that happens in the hall when we do these world premieres there's there's no anxiety there is a a real commitment the audience realizes that they are performing the most important function of an audience which is to take in a new work of art for the first time and and taking that adventure um that's what every great piece of art has gone through is that's the process um so i think it builds community i think it pushes the orchestra and connects us in really amazing ways and obviously for the art form in general um there's there's no more sacred duty i feel like that we have um than to support these composers support their vision and connect them with the musicians and with the audience and francesca speaking as a conductor as well um i i i wonder if we can dig even deeper to what you just said because, you know, for everyone that, you know, are thinking, everyone that's, that's thinking, well, there's, there's going to be a new music, a new composition, but I've, I haven't heard it. I, I don't know how it, it's going to be. For you specifically as a music director, what's your journey from, like, talking to a composer to seeing the score and having no sound but your own inner listening to the piece to an actual performance and talking to audience members. I think that's, that journey, it's just, 
incredibly fascinating. The people that are listening right now are should get some snippet because the audience member only gets the final product, but the process it's just so beautiful. It is. You know, I I've been thinking about ways to kind of open up that process more. Obviously, it it takes a lot of commitment on different sides to kind of make that happen. Um, you know, right now, honestly, is is I'm still learning how to how how this process can work in the best way. Um, you know, it's it's one of my one of my my uh, you know projects here in, in Eugene and Santa Rosa is I try basically to never commission anything that'll be under 15 minutes. I only want to commission large symphonies and concertos because if we're really going to ask our audience to make that commitment and we're really going to pour ourselves into a piece, you know, you you know how tight our rehearsal time is as conductors. And if you're doing a whole Beethoven symphony and a whole, you know, Rachmaninoff concerto and then you have a 10-minute new work, that 10-minute new work is not going to get the appreciation that it needs either in rehearsal or in the concert. Mm-hmm. And and sometimes that's fine, but if you're going to commission something, like if I'm going to put, you know, months and months of my life into this and ask my orchestra, my audience to really embrace a new composer and a new composition, I want us to have time to do that. Um, that said, it's a much more difficult process because suddenly instead of spending 30 minutes rehearsing a new work, you're going to spend the full two and a half hours digging through something that the orchestra has no idea what it's going to sound like. And to be fair, I have no idea what it's going to sound like. I mean, I could simulate it in my head and I've done everything I can do to prepare myself, but ultimately it's going to sound different than either myself and even the composer is expecting. And the process, the amount of changes, I mean, we're talking hundreds of changes, you know, between the first two rehearsals, you know, cutting measures, changing instruments, I mean, major, major changes. Um, And the only reason we can do that is we have time that I've, you know, we've made this commitment of rehearsal time to this new work. And when you have a 30 minute new piece that is incredibly difficult, it is, it's an absolute journey. And the piece completely changes from the first run through when you have no idea what it sounds like to the concert when we're starting to form an idea about it to the third concert where, you know, our third audience is appreciating it. We're still making changes. Like I'm still making adjustments even to that final concert. Um, it's so thrilling because you know, this is how it's always worked. Like, can you imagine Beethoven symphonies for the first time? I mean, what kind of how disastrous they probably were in that first rehearsal because no one was doing anything like that. And and the, what must have been going on in the heads of those performers to be able to say, you know, like Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, like, why the hell are there fermatas on the first two bars, you know, first four <laughs> bars? What, what, it, what kind of piece does that? Like, it doesn't even get started. There's so many fermatas in the first two minutes. And you can imagine kind of the first performances, like trying to figure out like how long should those fermatas be like what's going on here um, you know to get where we are today of course um but i i love it there's been nothing that's been more um fulfilling and and at the same time absolutely terrifying because you really don't know what's going to happen how it's going to sound how the audience is going to react um, but i think kind of to your point i think the more honest we are about that the more beautiful the process is, right? So going to the audience and saying, I'm not going to tell you guys that this is going to be a masterwork. I don't know. None of us know anything, right? And and literally, we should embrace what we don't know, what we don't understand. And we just, 
we just take it in. And some things we might really enjoy, some things we might not understand, some things we might not even like, and that's perfect. Like that is the whole process is that we do that. And if there was, I, you know, I, th I think that's, you have such a great point in, th in that, you know, how can we continue to convey that to our audience that they are a part of something. Mm -hmm. They are a part of something that is evolving and changing and, and to realize that the risk is on everyone. Everyone is taking that chance. You know, the audience is not just passive in this process. They really have to listen in a way that you don't listen to a piece that you already know what's going to happen next. And, and I think there's something beautiful about that. And I think it's something that we want to continue to embrace. It sounds just like life, right? Life, it's just like that. And <laughs> I'm, I'm actually, the way that you're, you're talking, it's just, I'm, I'm really thinking, this is something, you know, that a, a streaming service should, you know, really look into it, like make a, a full, you know, 10 season sort of episodes with, you know, all the journey of like bringing a, a new commission to life. It's, you know, to, to go into rehearsal con uh, conversation with the composers, you know, one, you know, pondering about life, you know, why is it this mezzo forte, not forte there? And I just, I mean, as a conductor that I, you know, try to do that all the time, it just seems so beautiful and so compelling for all of us to be at the hall you know, communicating uh, with our presence to, you know, bring the best of us for the work to be a successful one. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And I think, you know, it's the other great thing, you know, working with someone else, you know, because you and I, when we're studying, we spend hours wondering about that forte or mezzo forte and why and how to do it and what should happen. When you're doing a new work with a composer that's right there with you, that becomes a two-hour conversation, you know, and, and it's a it's a beautiful thing to be sitting there going back and forth. Uh, you know, I'm definitely. I think one of the reasons why I like working with composers is I like that to be an active process. And to be fair, there are some composers that don't want to work with me because they know I'm a tinkerer, and and I don't <laughs> just when I'm doing a world premiere, I expect it to be a process, and and I want that back and forth. Um, and so all the composers I work with, you know, it's when you finish that two and a half hour rehearsal, there is another two hour meeting where you go over every note and every little thing. And then you go to bed and you wake up the next morning, and you have another two hour call based on everything that you thought about or slept on. Um, you know, that is a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. It's time consuming. It's, uh, it's exhausting, but man, when you get to that first concert and you know, everyone's hearing something for the first time. Uh, that that thrill is incomparable. So you've you've mentioned um, Angelica Negron and Gabriella Smith. Um, who are some other maybe lesser known composers um, that you expect orchestras are going to be hearing more from in the coming years? Ooh, that's a good question. <laughs> you know, I I'm working so much. Um, with those composers, I'm yeah. trying to think of, you know, where the other world premiere we're doing this season is a new two piano concerto uh, by Ellen Taves Willick. Um, and she's someone I've been working with a lot. And obviously, you know, she's very established and, you know, the first woman to win the Pulitzer Prize um, for music. But in a weird way, and I, I'm not sure why, um, you know, it's it's 
she I don't think she has the recognition now that she maybe had 20 years ago and yet she's incredibly prolific and the the Santa Rosa Symphony actually put out our our first commercial CD in like our 94 year history and it was all her music and we have the the world premiere recording of her cello concerto which she wrote for Zul Bailey which is just brilliant um, and through that process, we were able to commission her to write this new two piano concerto um, for uh, the Naughton sisters. And uh, so that's that's you know that's a composer who I'm obviously I've been in very close contact with now for years. Yeah. Um, and excited to keep on promoting her music because she has she's been so prolific um, for decades. Um, but to keep that music in the repertoire because it is so important, and she continues to write music that matters. You know, she she wrote this new work for. Um, um, Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg um, that the Dallas Symphony did. Um, so, you know, she continues to write the music of our times, which I think is is really fun. Um, I've worked uh, a lot with actually, so, you know, I think my new thing is working with performers who are also composers. Mm-hmm. Um, that's been really fun. So working with the, the Klezmer clarinetist David Krakauer. I read, um, I read that, <laughs> um, that uh, about that premiere because uh, you guys just did that, right? Just before the new year, maybe? Yeah. Well, Santa Rosa gave the premiere a couple of years ago. Uh, okay. But it was a co-commission with my Got with it. Eugene. Okay. And uh, yeah. So it's, and that was a terrifically fun uh, program because, you know, David can do things that no one should yeah. be able to do on the <laughs> clarinet. And, and the way he just talks through the instrument. Uh, and we've worked together before. He was actually one of my professors in college. <laughs> Go figure. Um, but, you know, we've connected now as colleagues and friends. And I, I asked him once, because he writes so much music, like, have you ever written a clarinet concerto? Uh, and he said no one had asked him. And that's why I said, okay, hold on. I'm taking care of this. Uh, and sure enough, uh, we brought together this just incredible piece. I mean, it's it's the kind of piece that the audience, you know, is, is gasping in the middle of because the way he writes it, it's so virtuosic. It's so much fun. And it's got everything from, you know, rock and roll and funk and jazz and, and Mozart and Klezmer. Um, it's really kind of his story and how he brings that multicultural perspective. Um, and I, I can't say too much about it, but kind of my next thing is working with Conrad Tao, um, the wonderful oh, pianist awesome. and composer. Um, I've been wanting to work with him as a composer for a long time. And finally, I think we're going to get to put together a project um, that'll showcase kind of all of his many talents. Well, speaking of pianists and composers, I, I know I have an audience of the two of you now um, who are both uh, members of the pianist turned conductor club, right? <laughs> And I mean, we've talked to a lot of um, of conductors who, I mean, several of them have been pianists uh, who kind of make that transition. But I, I think the more traditional route is somebody who is, you know, is in the orchestra, you know, a, st- a string player, and that kind of naturally transitions to a symphonic conductor. Can I'm just curious for both of you um, to chat a little bit about just your journeys from, um, you know, being an instrumentalist to... Uh, becoming a composer and kind of what led you both there go ahead Gonzalo (laughs) (laughs) well for me if I have to be honest I feel that I was always a conductor in some ways I just happened to play piano since I was five Um, I just you know piano just came to me I don't even remember how I really started Um, but I was there the piano was there I could just play easily and, but like, since I remember being uh, young, I always wanted to be in the midst uh, of the sounds of strings and woodwinds and brass and just be, you know, 
trying to, you know, sculpture all these things uh, on the podium. It, it's, it's been a dream ever since. And of course, when you're like seven, and you know, it's hard to do that. So, and the piano was there and I was lucky enough to, to win, you know, I don't know, scholarship to, to play piano. And, you know, I met amazing teachers. And at the end, you know, I, I felt that piano gave me a really important foundation, even though I wasn't really aware. I'm only aware now. But back then I just did it because I was sort of good at it. And people told me that I had to continue. And it was, and I don't know, I'm sure for Francesco, you, you can understand that, you know, to transition towards conducting, it's always a very peculiar path, you know, very, you know, a personal, for me, it was quite hard to do that uh, leap uh, of faith. Um, but I mean, I always wanted to be a conductor. And I think what, what now I recognize that's great is that when you're a pianist for a, for a long time, your ear kind of develops a bit differently. Your, your sensitivity to register, to color. Uh, for me, like, I don't know, legato sounds are really, really, really important because I had to work really hard to find that. <laughs> you know, when you're a singer, a, you know, clarinet player, it's so much easier, you know, to connect notes with your, you know, breath, with, you know, with a bow. With piano, it was just so hard. I was spending hours trying to really know how I could, you know, imitate that kind of a sound. And now I appreciate it. And so I think my ear developed uh, with many, many years of being by myself on the practice room. And finally, I, it felt so much uh, more natural for me to be on the podium because all of those things just, of course, it, it, it come natural. So. I don't know. That was my, my journey. And, and I always feel like I always was a conductor in some ways. And, and I play piano because it was there. And, and, and now I actually, I embrace it back a bit more. I, now I, I miss it a tiny bit playing piano and playing, you know, chords and tunes and, and silly songs, you know, now I miss it. And I, I'm, I'm trying to go back to it. That's that's amazing because I I literally was gonna say the exact same thing, which is I <laughs> I I play more piano now just for fun. Like I find myself going back to it more often um, because there's there's a directness to it, right? You know, in 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 rehearsal, if I rehearse a phrase more than five times, I'm gonna start getting some dirty looks. Probably after like three times, right? Yep. But if I'm at home at my piano trying to figure out how to phrase something in a Beethoven sonata. I can spend like the next five hours, like no one cares. Like I'm just there fiddling around as long as I want to. And there, there's something beautiful about kind of letting your full perfectionism just come out occasionally. Because as, as a conductor, it's, you know, both games. You have to have a mind towards perfectionism and a mind towards what are the goals? Where are we trying to get to in the amount of time that we have? Um, and it's kind of a beautiful thing to return to the piano. Um, I, I think... My journey was also kind of similar. Um, I think I, I always kind of had in my back of my head that I would love to conduct. Um, you know, I was playing a youth orchestra. I played uh, violin, viola, and clarinet too in high school. So I was definitely minded towards orchestra already. Uh, but piano was just by far my, my strongest instrument. And and it's been really helpful now, thank God. For, for me, the best part about it is I love opera. And if you want to do opera, the traditional way you have to coach your own singers from the piano and i got my start 
by coaching singers. I was like a staff pianist for Santa Fe Opera. I, you know, did all my own coachings in New York when I was studying there. Um, so, you know, it's, it's one of those things I love working with singers and that ability to sit down at a piano and work with a singer and get them feeling comfortable before you work with the orchestra um, has been really helpful. And then the second thing is I love continual playing. Um, so any kind of Haydn symphony, anything broke, um, I never conduct, I play instead. And, and I love that feeling of just getting in the weeds with the orchestra. Um, you know, I, I do, I've done several messiahs, which is probably the craziest thing I do as, as a play conduct, uh, which is terrifically fun, you know, anything with recits. Um, but, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's made itself useful to me now, which I'm really grateful for because otherwise I would really miss getting, you know, to work on my on my own sometimes. Well, you both have passed the uh, the serious portion of today's podcast, yes. <laughs> but now um, we have a question that we we like to ask all of our guests, and that is uh, Francesco. So we're called Beethoven walks into a bar. So there, it's a two part question. The first question is, what is your favorite beverage? That can be alcoholic, non-alcoholic, caffeinated, non-caffeinated, you know, froofy, frozen, on the rocks, whatever. And um, the second part is, if you were enjoying one of those beverages and uh, you happen to meet Mr. Beethoven at a table, uh, he was also enjoying a beverage, what would you ask him? It, it could be, what the hell are all of these fermatas doing in the first movement of Beethoven 5? <laughs> but... If there's anything else you might want to ask him. That that would be great. That, that's absolutely <laughs> what I would have cost Beethoven about is like, how long do you actually want those fermatas to be? And dear God, can you please, for once, tell all the conductors in the universe whether you want space after them or not? Like, that would save me so much angst in my life <laughs> and going back and forth and back and forth and... You know, I, I remember like working with Gustavo Dudamel and I was like so in awe of him when he came to, to Pittsburgh and did this incredible concert and, you know, rehearsed Beethoven 5 by memory, of course, and all this stuff. And um, but it was amazing to watch him still tinkering. Like, I mean, he's probably done Beethoven 5 like I don't even want to know, you know, thousands of times. And to watch him still tinkering with how to do that opening, I know that I have no hope. Like, I know that I will spend the rest of my life also never feeling like I've quite got that opening just the way I want to. Um, I think as far as drink, um, yeah, it kind of depends on the time of day. I mean, I, obviously I'm a huge coffee drinker um, just to survive. <laughs> uh, but I, I, I probably, my favorite post-concert drink is just like a Manhattan mm. uh, on the rocks, on the rocks. Cause I like, you, you need that extra bit of liquid to make yourself feel better after a concert. So always have it on the rocks. Rehydrate, yes. hydrate. <laughs> yeah, that, that's, that's me hydrating is, is a Manhattan, but on the rocks, please. Thank you. <laughs> Well, you'll fit in quite nicely here with Beethoven walks into a bar because that is definitely the popular opinion. Sweet. Uh, Manhattan, that's great. <laughs> awesome. Well, you guys, this has been a great chat. I, I thank you so much. Uh, before we part, um, maybe we could leave our listeners today with a little recommended listening. So if, if either of you have any thoughts on things you've been listening to lately, new music, uh, stuff that you've turned back to, you know, what are you guys listening to that that we should check out? Gonzalo, you first. Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> I, I've been listening lately uh, a lot of Mason Bates, actually. Yeah. Uh, but not the, uh, the Philharmonia Fantastique, actually, all the other works, because I just wanted to know more about his language. Um, so I've been listening to Mothership and um, Revolution of uh, Steve Jobs. That's been quite amazing to 
just to see different sides of him and, and how he composes and, and the narrative and the rhythmic uh, uh, flow of his pieces. And now after the holidays, you know, try to kind of settle into <laughs> the new year. This is kind of something completely different. I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. It's, this is not classical. You are is absolutely okay? allowed to say this. Okay, so I've been listening a lot of the father of uh, Bossa Nova, uh, oh. Joao Gilberto. He's a, a guitar player and the way he just sings, it's just so mellow. It just makes you feel at home. And like thinking about everything that's coming and everything that happened before, I just needed some sort of at home kind of, you know, music to feel settled. And I've been listening quite a bit of Joao Gilberto. I love that. We're going to add that to our playlist for the episode. That's great. What about you, Francesco? No, I like that too, since you've opened that can of worms. Because I, <laughs> I mean, for fun, I don't listen to classical. I mean, that's that's what I do the rest of my life, you know. And mm -hmm. and obviously, I I spend hours just listening to new stuff. You know, one, one of the problems with becoming known for promoting and championing new music is everybody sends you their stuff. And I try to make a point of every couple months, I collect all the scores and the recordings that people send me. Um, so so I, I have plenty that I listen to. Um, so outside of that, just for fun, you know, I mean, I'm definitely on the on the jazz side of things. That's always been um, any city that I visit. Um, you know, I'll tr usually try to find whatever the jazz club is in town. And well, I feel like you can tell a lot. We have plenty for you to visit here. Great. Yes. yes. <laughs> I feel like you can tell a lot by just getting to know those musicians and getting to kind of get into that vibe. Um, so that's always been really fun for me. Um, my my father raised me on classic rock. Yes. And I have no shame. I have no shame about that. Like, I love the rock operas of like The Who. Um, I'll, I'll do that like all day. If I need to get pumped up for a long day or some special project or a long drive, because it's sometimes I drive the eight hours up to Eugene for concerts and, and then uh -huh. back here to Santa Rosa. Uh, you need some good music <laughs> that'll that'll keep you going. So, you know, I, I would say on on, uh, on just listening for fun, it's, it's usually something along those lines. I love it. You know, um, Gonzalo, when you said that you, you know, have been listening to Mason Bates, it reminds me that you know, we are doing um, Philharmonia Fantastique on a family concert upcoming, which I can't wait to do. And um, if I, if you'll all indulge me for a moment, so you'll our listeners will notice that um, our co-host Michael Gordon is missing today. He had a, an, another engagement. We really wanted to chat with um, Francesco. So we we made a substitution, which I think is turned out great. But while he's gone, I wanted to tell you a funny story about Michael Gordon <laughs> as it applies to Philharmonia Fantastique. So Michael is our principal flutist. He's incredible. He's wonderful. He's a great friend of mine and, and ours. You know, our season's been out for a good year and a half now, right? I mean, like, it's, it's been out. He, at some, at some point in December, he texts me a link to Philharmonia Fantastique, and he said, Stop what you're doing right now and listen to this. It's incredible. We need to do it someday. And I wrote him back and I said, well, Mike, we're playing it in January. So in just about three and a half weeks, you should probably start practicing. <laughs> <laughs> and he looks at it and he says, oh, crap. And then he looked at, he was listening to the music and he was like, I really do need to start practicing. How many rehearsals do we have? And he, start, he just starts freaking out about it. So you'll have to give him a hard time when you see him that uh, he, 
He needs to be looking ahead a little bit more, Gonzalo. We'll, we'll do it. No, no worries. <laughs> I'll add it to his listening list. How about this? This is rec- Mike's recommended listening is Philharmonia Fantastic. Stop whatever you're doing and listen to it now. <laughs> well, you guys, thanks for being great sports and uh, chatting with us today. I can't wait. Truly, I cannot wait for this program. And after hearing you, Francesco, talk about uh, the way it came together and and all the things that we should be listening for. I think um, it's going to be a really enlightening and um, enjoyable and entertaining program. I can't wait to hear it all and to meet you in person. So thank you for being here. Gonzalo, thank you for being here. Oh, it's been a pleasure as always, right? And Francesco, it's so delighted to hear you, to see you. And I can't wait to see you conduct and work with you. It's, it's going to be a really a great week and, and great uh, sets of concerts, I'm very sure. Well, thank you so much. I, I've heard so much about the orchestra in the hall and obviously have some colleagues that play there. So um, so looking forward to coming out and working with you, Gonzalo. And Stephanie, thank you so much for inviting me and, and for the conversation today. Well, remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Francesco will lead the Kansas City Symphony on January 13th through 15th in Hellsberg Hall at the Kaufman Center for the Performing Arts in a program of Mason Bates. Mozart and Respighi. And on the next episode of Beethoven Walks Into Our Bar, we chat with guest conductor Kevin John Edusey about his upcoming visit conducting Zemlinski's The Mermaid and Barber's Violin Concerto. Tickets for both programs are available at kcsymphony.org. Join us again next week for another episode of Beethoven Walks Into a Bar. 